want to thank uh, the worship team and uh, everybody for making me feel welcome and uh, support. Our pastor is in uh, Montana at a wedding, and so um, here a month or so ago, he asked uh, who would want to fill in for him. So uh, I asked uh, Marcus first and then Fred. <laughs> Actually, I volunteered them, and uh, so I um, taught at the Walla Walla Community College for years. I recently uh, have an enforced retirement, and um, it's a whole lot different giving a message to a church body than giving a lecture uh, at a community college. And uh, we have a scripture that gives a synopsis of how we're to administer our gifts. So I wanted to read that first. And actually, uh, Pastor Matt gave this a couple weeks ago. First uh, Peter verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 says, Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So no big deal. Just make sure that when you do preach, make sure it's only God's words and not your own. So this is my prayer. I wanted to pray before we start this morning. Lord, we thank you for being with us, and we thank you for, for preserving uh, your word. Thank you for the, the part that we're going to study this morning that you've kept for 3,000 years. And we'd ask that uh, your people would be fed, that your Holy Spirit would fill all of us, that you would give us insight, you would help us to understand the scripture, and help us to apply it and appreciate it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So it looks a little different from up here. It's been a while since I've uh, done this. I, um, our friend uh, and uh, brother in Christ, Gil Alden, um, gave some advice here about a month ago, and that advice was, uh, I think it was actually a friend of his that said, for as many minutes as you read the or follow the news, spend that much time in the Psalms. And so I've been uh, reading in the Psalms, and uh, it's quite helpful. I don't know if you find yourself going through this, but uh, when I follow the news, I get agitated. Uh, maybe it's just me. I get frustrated. I get disappointed. I kind of have expectations that people are going to act in a certain way for the benefit of our country, for the benefit of others, and do the right thing, and such like that. And maybe I should just lower my expectations and, and think, no, no, they're not going to do that. But um, what I love about the Psalms is they're written by, by uh, people who go through various emotional states, and they bring those emotional states directly to God, and they work through that. Uh, through the psalm. Uh, they don't go off in isolation and have a pity party. 
They don't stuff it. Like, that's my favorite thing to do. Just take that emotion, stuff it down, and then, of course, it comes back and bites you later. I don't know if you use that, that type of uh, system, but all of a sudden, oh, what was that? Oh, yeah, I stuffed that about 20 years ago, and it comes back to bite me. Um, I'd like to recommend a couple of helpful guides that I've been using. Uh, one, I don't know if you've heard of Timothy Keller, um, but he's written some excellent books. Um, the Prodigal God comes to mind. Uh, excellent uh, books that I've... Well, he and his wife, Kathy, go through the Psalms, I believe, every month. And uh, so he and, and his wife have written a book called The Songs of Jesus. Obviously, they were sung and memorized uh, by the Jews. And so they've taken a 365-day devotional and divided the Psalms up into that. And it's really easy, one, one page, not even an entire page, uh, for each day. And uh, because they're written in another time in another language uh, with different customs, sometimes it's helpful to see, okay, what were they talking about here? You know that phrase about, here I, here I place my Ebenezer? Uh, okay, there's another one uh, that I turn to. This is an older one. Um, it's a two-volume one, uh, part of the um, uh, InterVarsity Press series on the Old Testament, uh, Derek Kidner. Uh, this uh, first one's on Psalm 1 through 72. So if, uh, if you recognize some of these from those, it's because they've given me a seed thought. Uh, for some of the things that I'm going to say today, but I wanted to highly recommend uh, both of those. So I um, chose Psalm 22 uh, because of the things that uh, occurred there. It's one of those psalms that uh, I just uh, grown to love and have poured over this last month. Hopefully it'll bring um, insight and appreciation. Uh, for the work of our Lord. So let's take a look at uh, Psalm 22. I want to read the first uh, eight verses. So Psalm 22, um, actually the, the top verse is part of the psalm. It's verse 1 in the Hebrew. For the director of music to the tune of the dove of the morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and we're not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. So I could find nothing in David's experience uh, that fits this psalm. It's not... Um, it's not uh, part of David's experience, but what I did find in Acts 2.30 is that Peter says David was a prophet. That is, David predicted future events. If you want to know how to determine if someone who's a, a preacher or someone who's writing a commentary uh, is of God or not, just ask them 
if they believe in predictive prophecy? Do they believe that uh, the Old Testament predicts things about Jesus? Or was it some committee that got together that uh, predicted things after they happened? So that divides quite a few different commentators and, and pastors over the years. But Acts 2.30, Peter says David was a prophet. David predicted things. This was written about 1000 B.C. And Hebrews 2.12 quotes verse 22 as being fulfilled in Jesus as Messiah. So we recognize verse 1 as uh, what came from Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross. And this psalm is about an execution predicted in minute detail by David as prophet a thousand years before it was fulfilled in Jesus. So I'll be listing the New Testament references where uh, Psalm 22 was fulfilled. But it is far more than that. Uh, we enter into the very suffering of the Messiah and what he was thinking as he hung upon the cross. To me, this is sacred ground. It is holy ground. We're not going to be able to finish the entire psalm, but I believe it's what Jesus was thinking as he was on the cross. So it's, uh, it's incredible as we look through it. So... Let's take a look at verse uh, 1 through 3. If we look at, uh, sorry, are you able to put up? Uh, okay. So if we look at uh, verse 1, where have you seen this uh, cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anybody? Yeah, it's on the cross, right? So I'm going to try to say it in the Aramaic. And remember that uh, from Psalm, excuse me, from Matthew 27, it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud, loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. He's probably saying it louder than that. He's probably screaming it. He's probably saying it. Uh, in a really loud voice. It says he cried out in a loud voice in Aramaic. So let's take a look at what, what is happening. It's begun. The familiar, close, protective relationship with the Father has been severed, causing more pain than any lash or any crown of thorns. He's disoriented, and he expresses that. And this is one of the things I love about the Psalms. Instead of, as I said, stuffing it or denying it or refusing to admit that it's happening, they express it. This is what I'm going through. And you see that in this Psalm over and over again. This is what I'm feeling. I don't know about you and your emotions, but sometimes I don't express emotion. I don't know why that is. It's probably something's happened to me in the past and explains how I'm weird. But um, the Jewish conception is we're going to get it out there. We're going to express it. Jesus the Messiah is expressing this. It doesn't mean he's rejected his faith. It doesn't mean he's become an atheist. It means he's disoriented. This is how it appears. God has for forgotten me. He's, when you look at the things he says, why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and am not silent. So he, he's alone. 
Have you ever felt uh, that your prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back to you? That nobody really hears? I think if we're honest, we've experienced things like that in our life, right? Okay, we're in church. You're not supposed to ever say things like that, right? Can we drop the mask and say, oh, yes. Yes, I really felt that. I've gone through periods in my life where I've been at the end of my rope, and forgive me for saying this, but it doesn't seem like God's come through. And it's not where I wanted a new car. It's where I was praying for someone that they not die or someone that they not have to experience this physical pain, and they did. It wasn't where I wanted something for myself, some little trinket. That's excruciating. I'm not talking about uh, something for myself. So that occurs over and over in the Bible. I'm, I remember talking to someone at the community college where I asked them, so why, why don't you um, accept or consider Christianity? And they said, well, because when I look out, there's a lot of suffering in the world. And I said, would you believe that's one of the major themes in the Bible? Unjust suffering? Well, no. I said, would you want to read the Bible and see what it says? There's an entire book named Job that, that deals with this issue of suffering. It doesn't make sense. There's God in heaven. God's supposed to be good, but there's suffering on the earth. A lot of people that are seemingly good seem to go through a lot of unjust suffering. And they were surprised at that. I said, well, read through about three of the prophets and you'll see they're troubled by this. Read through the Psalms, and you see that this just aches. They just ache for, why is this this way? And I left them like that. And I said, maybe you want to read the little bit of the Bible. So anyway, there are times when it just seems bleak. There are times when God seems distant, when platitudes just do not help. But look at what the psalmist does. Even though he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who's he directed to? My God, right? He doesn't walk away and say, I'm giving up on you. He says directly, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still in communication, even in his anguish. That's the thing I love about the song. So what do you do when you feel like God has left you? What he does in verse 3 through 5 is he reminds himself of God's character and of God's faithfulness in the past. He says in verse 3 through 5, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So others before us, others before the psalmist, have put their trust in God and they were not disappointed. Neither will you be disappointed. Neither will I be disappointed, right? Um, in Jesus' case, this is a reminder of why he is there. He has a purpose. He knows that he's there for a purpose. Um, there must be a payment for sin, and he will trust and praise God just as others who have come before him have done. 
So what's helpful in these dark nights of the soul is to remind ourselves of God's character, his attributes. He is faithful. He has a purpose. He does not disappoint. And it helps to think of specific examples where God showed up. For people in the Bible and for those uh, who we know and for specific instances in our life that God showed up and made a difference. So then we go back and forth in the psalm in verse 6 through 8, back to where the Messiah is experiencing, what he's experiencing and what he's thinking. Uh, verse uh, 7 and 8 are fulfilled in uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and we're going to take a look at Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 39 through 44. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. The very people that Jesus is taking their place, dying for them, are mocking him. So just as a question about human nature, do you think that uh, they would believe if he came down from the cross? No. They're mocking him. You ever mocked anybody? The whole point is to humiliate them, right? You won't believe them. Maybe some of you have never mocked anybody. So I'm just here to tell you, the whole point is to make fun of them, to heap abuse upon them, to kick them while they're down. Some of you may need some lessons on how to mock. I can give them to you. It's not a very Christian thing to do. Oh, that's right. I don't do that now. Anyway, um, so do you remember what Jesus told Peter when he uh, rebuked him for cutting off the servant's ear? Remember that? It says in Matthew 26, verse 52 through 54, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? My point is, was it weakness that Jesus hung on the cross? So we understand that two angels destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. A legion of angels is what, 6,000? So he's saying, all I have to do is ask my father, and he's going to send 72,000 angels to fight for me, Peter. Do you understand it's not weakness that I'm going to the cross? What was it? Why did he go to the cross? There's obedience and love, right? It wasn't weakness. So here's the thing, when people are mocking you, how do you want to respond? Have you ever been mocked? Have you ever been shamed publicly? What do you want to respond with? Okay, we're going to have to step outside the typical Christian response and say, what would you like to respond with? Oh my goodness, people, come on. 
I want to get back at them. Right? I'm going to get you, you dirty little so-and-so. Okay, that was not a Christian response, but that's how I'd like to. I want payback. I want somebody to, uh, I want revenge. Right? Did Jesus do that? No, he did not. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened off his mouth. He did not seek revenge. In fact, in one of those cases, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's completely different than the response that I would give. So I often wondered what my response would be if I was there. I don't think I would have been like Mary and John and Mary Magdalene, his mother. There were just a few women. There was John, the rest, you know about Peter's denial, you know that the rest of the disciples ran and hid. Just a few people that were there. I probably would have been one of the people mocking him. I hate to say it. There's a song that I've asked um, Andrew and Vicky to sing afterwards. And uh, the second verse, it's called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I can barely get through the second verse. And it goes like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. A shame I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I know what I would have been doing if I was there. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. So, again, I don't know if any of you have ever been made fun of or ever been shamed. Um, these things are especially difficult uh, to endure. And you want to fight back. You want to, um, you don't want to be in a, position of weakness, you want the other person to have these uh, places reversed. But you don't see that desire for revenge at all in this. Let's take a look at verse uh, 9 through 18. Uh, verse 9 and 10 says, Yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. So having reminded himself of God's faithfulness to his people in the past in verse 3 through 5, the psalmist remembers God's personal care uh, from, uh, from his very birth. God has been there protecting him even when he was a helpless baby, and the implication is that he will help him now. Then in verse 12 through 18, he's alone, and his enemies are closing in. Look at verse uh, 12. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 
So the people that have surrounded him are closing in, and they are described as strong bulls, roaring lions, dogs, and a pack of villains, and they're all focused on him as their prey. We begin to realize that this psalm is describing more than just suffering or persecution. It portrays an execution, and this is not a Jewish execution. Um, this is something that was unknown. This type of execution was unknown at the time of David. And some of these specific details are fulfilled and specifically said to be fulfilled in the gospel. So I want to take a look at some of those uh, fulfillments. In verse uh, 15, this looks like uh, John 19:28, which reads, um, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So the type of thirst described here. Uh, I've never experienced that. I've never experienced uh, this t degree of thirst. Um, tongue cleaves to the roof of your mouth. And then um, all four Gospels see verse 18 fulfilled. Uh, I wanted to look at uh, the passage in John 19, verse 23 and 24. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So fulfillment of verse uh, 18, literally. So verse 16 says, they pierced my hands and my feet, and this portrays a Roman execution by crucifixion unknown at the time of the writing of the psalm 3,000 years ago. So a, a graphic description, um, I hesitate to go into it. How many kids do we have in here? Maybe hold their ears. Um, a prisoner was often beaten forced to carry a crossbeam, stripped naked, nailed to that crossbeam, then hoisted up to be gazed upon by a crowd. The prisoner was not killed immediately, nor did death come soon. The victim was in agony. He or she couldn't breathe, and often it was a she. Uh, the joints became dislocated. Sometimes death came by asphyxiation, suffocation. Other times the legs would have to be broken. Uh, to hasten death. So just as uh, why would the Romans put their victims through this humiliating, excruciating torture? Any ideas? What was it? Control? What else? Fear. If you're a great empire, you want people to fear you. If you have 30% of the people in your empire are slaves, you want a slave rebellion? There have been some in the Roman Empire. So you will fear us. We can do this to you. One of the laws in the Roman Empire was that if any slave killed the master, all the slaves in that household would be killed. And you have examples of 300 slaves being killed by crucifixion because one killed the master. You will fear us, all of you slaves. Can you understand why slaves hated the Roman Empire and were ready to revolt at any time? We're going to die anyway. 
Anyway, um, crucifixion was a horrible, horrible type of death. But the point was not death. The point was, we can do this to you, and you can't do anything. So we see this death by crucifixion that was predicted in Psalm 22. But beyond the fulfillment of prophecy in death by crucifixion, we see the inner thoughts of the one who is enduring the crucifixion. Let's look again at verse 14 through 18 from the standpoint of Jesus describing his own personal experience. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. He is exhausted. He is terribly thirsty. I know paintings show Jesus with a loincloth, but I'm not sure he had one. He was utterly humiliated. We live in a society that knows no shame, so it's difficult to describe a society um, that is modest. This is one other way that the Romans could publicly embarrass a person was by stripping them naked and then having, having them exposed to the world. Again, we turn to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. There is uh, too much to cover in uh, Psalm 22 in one message, and my hope is that I can come back at it some future time and finish it up. But what we have seen so far is one who chose to endure a humiliating, painful execution for someone else, for us, for you and me. And this sacrificial love is at the heart of God, and it's at the heart of the gospel. I want to read you a couple of verses that uh, encapsulize the gospel for us today. 1 John 2.2 2 says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And when asked by Jewish folks in John 6.28, what must we do to work the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So my desire for you this morning is that we recognize the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and in gratitude, give ourselves to him. Let's pray, and then I'd like to invite the Andrew and Vicki up here to sing How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this uh, deep scripture that shows us your son's heart and what he went through in our behalf, and we are so appreciative, so appreciative of what uh, is done for us, and in gratitude, we just say thank you. In his name we pray.